here, here we go, part three of this uh, In the Beginning series. And I don't know if anybody's looking at the clock. I am. Uh, we got a lot of, of stuff to get through and getting a 17 minute late start doesn't help with that. Uh, so let me, just, let me just tell you, like I don't, I don't know uh, if, you got a, if you got a roast in the crock pot or something at home. Like if your house is gonna burn down, you should probably go take care of it. If it's, if it's not, um, you might want to stick around till the end. I don't, I don't know if I can cram everything into uh, 21 minutes. Gonna, this is going to be tough. But I'm wasting time, so let's get, let's get to it. Um, part one of this uh, study in the beginning, Genesis chapter one, that uh, we learned that um, we learned... We learned about the God who, uh, who started all of this. We learned three things about him. We learned that he's creative, that he's spirit, and that he is word. We also learned in uh, last week, or, or in the first week, that he didn't tell us everything that we needed to know about creation or about how he did it. He just tells us enough. He wants us to get the picture that he existed before us, uh, the kind of personality that he has in, in creating and, and being spirit and being word. He wants to give us this picture even if we don't completely understand the process. Now last week we asked this um, question. So why does this God who's creative in spirit and, and word, or what does this God want us to discover about him and about ourselves through the creation process? And so we talked about it not being um, a primer on creation, but really a poem about creation. And if it's a poem, that means there's a point to it. And so he's trying to share us, trying to share something with you. He wants us to discover some things here. Um, and, and we talked about how it's, it's not a, a poem or, or it isn't about how God created everything, but it's about how God cherishes everyone. Um, and so we came to the end of the sixth day of creation and we asked this question, why does God start his story like this? This is the first time that God tells a human being, write this down so that you can share it with everybody else. Why does he start his story like this? What's he trying to get across? What is it that he wants us to discover about who he is and about who um, we are. And so that's the question that we're gonna kind of tackle this morning. Now, when we look closely at the six days of creation in Genesis one, we notice that in the first three days, God is separating, right? He's separating light from dark on day one. He separates water from sky on day two. And then he separates uh, the seas from the land on day three. Then we move into this series of three days where instead of separating, God is filling. And so God fills the place of light with the sun and the moon and the stars on day four. Then on day five, he fills the water and the sky with fish and birds. And then on day six, he fills the land, after he separated that, he fills the land with animals and then finally humans. Now, I told you that maybe this was a poem. Um, I'm, I'm going to tell you today, it absolutely is a poem. And we know that it's a poem because it follows this ancient style of writing a poem called a, a chiasm. Now, that's a, a, a big word, and I want you to know that you do not have to remember that. 
okay? It, it is not important to your Bible reading or your understanding or, or whatever. It just is a literary style called a, a chiasm. Just notice that the pattern in the poem goes A, B, C, A, B, C. So he um, separates the, uh, he separates the light and the dark on day one, then that corresponds to day four, where he fills the space of light with the sun, moon, and stars. So you just get that picture in your head, A, B, C, A, B, C. That's how that chiasm works. Each of those things is connected. Day one and four, day two and five, day three and six are connection. There's something else in this uh, chiasm poem that is lost when we translate it from the Hebrew uh, into what happened is a translation of Hebrew into Greek and then Greek into English. And so we've gone back and we've got to look at it. But there are some things that are lost in translation. Things like this. Um, the first day of creation, it covers a few verses. But in the original Hebrew, the first day of creation is a, is a, a baby paragraph. It's a small paragraph on the first day. On the second day, we get a medium-sized paragraph. On the third day, we, we get a big paragraph. There's a big paragraph about God separating the water from the, from the land. Then on the fourth day, it's a big paragraph. On the fifth day, it's a medium-sized paragraph in the Hebrew. On the sixth day, it's a little baby paragraph if you take out the creation of humanity and uh, the day of rest that God talks about, okay? So there's a pattern there. And instead of going ABC, ABC, it goes ABC, CBA. Baby, middle size, big, big, medium size, baby. So it's like a, a mirror image. So it's, if you think about it this way, uh, the first three days are, would be like a triangle this way from little to big, and the last three days are triangle this way from big to little. And what happens on uh, the other one, ABC, ABC? Well, it kind of is like a triangle like this and a triangle like this. So it's backwards. So Genesis 1 is not only a poem, but it's both of the kind of chiasm poems that you can have at the same time. Which, I don't know if you remember creative writing back in school. Do you have to, you have to take that? Uh, I took a lot of writing classes when I was in school. Um, writing is, is difficult. <laughs> um, you have to really think about how things fit together when you're going to write with this kind of in, intentionality. So it really is kind of crazy. What we notice, especially in the original Hebrew, is that there is a cadence and a rhythm to this poem in Genesis chapter one. Again, some of that is lost in, uh, in translation. But we can kind of see it with the repeating of certain um, refrains that are there. And we see several things that happen. So there are three days that mirror three days. That seems like a poem that lends to the cadence and the rhythm. There's a threeness of the creator. He's creative, he's spirit, and he's word. So there's three things. The word bara creates creation. That single word appears three times in Genesis 1. It appears at the beginning and in the middle and at the end. And the end, or the third time it appears in the text, it appears in rapid fire succession three times. So we see this repeating of three things that happens over and over again. We also notice that, that we're told in Genesis 1 that there were seven days of creation. 
And, and so you might think if this is a poem, there probably is a series of sevens within this poem. Like you would think that these things would kind of repeat and you would be absolutely correct if you had that uh, thought. The phrase, it was so, appears seven times in that text in the Hebrew. Uh, the phrase, and God saw, appears seven times. The word God appears 35 times, which if anybody likes math, is seven times Five, 35, right. Uh, the word earth occurs 21 times, which is seven times three. So you begin to go, mm, this, is, this is kind of interesting the way all of this um, works out. Uh, what is seven plus three? 10, that's right. Uh, and so the phrase to make appears 10 times in the poem. The phrase according to its kind appears 10 times. The phrase and God said appears 10 times, but... It appears three times in reference to people and seven times in reference to creatures, 10 times. The phrase let there be occurs 10 times as well, three times in reference to things in heaven and seven times in reference to things on earth. Now, I'll tell you again, there will not be a test on this, okay? You're not gonna get to heaven and Jesus is gonna go, answer me these three questions about the chiasm in Genesis 1. <laughs> and if you can pass it, you're gonna, you're gonna get through, okay? This is not uh, Monty Python's Holy Grail where you're trying to get across the, the rope bridge to the next stage and if you miss it, you get thrown in. This is not what's going to happen. You do not have to um, know this. What you do need to know is, is this. It's just to help us understand a couple things about this text in Genesis chapter one. The first thing is when you write, like anything, when you write, you don't get symmetry on accident. You don't stumble into this kind of symmetry rhythm and cadence and the repeating of words and how it all fits together. You don't get that on on accident. There's intentionality when you find those kind of things in, in writing. Secondly, if you're writing a scientific primer on how God created the universe, you would not write it this way. It would not have these kind of repeating uh, phrases and, and words and turns and, and things. It just, we just wouldn't do it that way. And all of this points to this idea that it's not a scientific primer on creation. We're not supposed to look at it and go, this is absolutely exactly how God did it. We're supposed to look at it and go, wow, God is incredible. There must be some things he wants us to know about what's going on here. Now, one of the primary ways we discover a chiasm in literature, in the Bible in particular, but in all literature, is to notice the, the bookends. And so the way that a chiasm is set up, ABC, CBA, or ABC, ABC, um, it lends us to looking at it and then going, okay, uh, we talked about this last week, what's the treasure in the text? When you see a chiasm and you figure out the bookends, you go, what's in the middle? What is there for us to um, kind of understand? What is it that God wants us to discover or the writer wants us to um, discover? So chiasms appear all over the place uh, in the Bible. There is a somewhat complex one in Joel chapter three, verses 17 to 21. Uh, it's a little more difficult to catch because there's a whole bunch of pieces and parts to it. There's a more simple chiasm in John chapter four, verses 23 and 24, a little easier to see. Uh, and then there's this one in Genesis nine, six. Whoever shed 
the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. And that's kind of gross, I understand that, but this is God kind of laying down some rules in the very beginning. But look at what, what happens when uh, Julie clicks the next slide. ABC, CBA, do you, you get that? So shed and shed, blood and blood, man and man. So we have a, a little chiasm here in the middle of Genesis chapter nine. So the book ends in this verse are really easy to see. And so the next time you're reading the Bible, you're reading a verse, you're reading a chapter or whatever, and you see a couple things repeat, you might go, I wonder if this is a chiasm and you can read it a little more closely and see if it breaks down um, either this way or the other way, ABC, ABC. Well, uh, it's easy to see that in a, in a verse like this. It's a little more difficult to see it in Genesis chapter one. It's not quite as, as obvious. Um, and so uh, we gotta ask some questions about Genesis chapter one. The first one is what was there in the beginning besides God? Uh, the Hebrew term we talked about in week one was tohu vavohu. Do you remember what it meant? Cha I know you guys are just embarrassed to say it. I'm sure you remember. Chaotic nothingness, good job. Uh, chaotic nothingness. So what was there besides God in the beginning? Nothing, right. And then um, we haven't read it yet, but on day seven, God does something. He rests, or we would say that he does nothing. So you see the, the bookends for the chiasm. It starts with nothing and it ends with nothing. And so then we have to go, okay, what's happening in the middle? What do we find in the middle? What does God, now that we know that the book ends for the chiasm, what's going on uh, in the middle? So Marty Solomon from Baymaw Podcast says that once you notice the chiasm, you work from both ends towards the center. And there's a very important word, dead center, of this chiasm poem in Genesis chapter one, and I think it's really good, but I don't wanna tell you about it just, just yet. We're gonna save it for the, for the end of the message. So right now, let's jump into the Genesis story, the parts we haven't read yet, beginning in verse 26, and we'll wrap up the seven days of creation and see what we can, we can see here. God said, let us make mankind in our image and our likeness so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God creates humanity and he says, okay, everything, that I, everything else that I created in day one and two and three and four and five and the first part of six, humanity is gonna rule over that. So God is king, right? He's creator, he's over all, and he says to his creation, to humanity, you are going to be like me to the rest of, the rest of creation. You are going to rule like me over the rest of creation. That's kind of an important thing. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. The, the image of God, we go, we go, what is that? What's the image of God? How do, how do we do that? Well, um, God is the ruler, and in this verse, he just made us rulers with him. You rule over all the other stuff that I just created. So we have the image of God in the sense that we're to rule over creation, which is what he does. We also are created 
from this point, we, uh, God has no starting point, right? He's infinite. He has no starting point. You and I have a starting point. We have no ending point. So we are created, but we are created to be eternal beings like God in a sense. So we have the image of God, even though we're not an exact representation of God. We have the image of God because we get to be eternal just like him. So there's lots of things that we can um, talk about there. God blessed them and said to them, like he said to other things in the previous days of creation, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and, and, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And then God says, I give you every seed bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it, and they will be yours for food. And there's all kinds of stuff we could talk about here if you wanted to get, if you wanted to hug some trees. It's all kinds of things we could talk about. That's not really important here. What really is important is God said, look, I'm not gonna just give you control over all this stuff that I've created. I've actually created it for you. You don't just get to rule it, it serves you. It supplies your need, it feeds you, and it's gonna keep you going, that's important. And to all the beasts of the earth and the birds of the sky and of the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. Remember that because we're going to come back to it. There was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Now we've heard that five other times before this, right? Remember that. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing, this work of creating the universe. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and he made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done, period. Whoops, go back, Julie. Period. <laughs> Did you, do you notice what's missing from this? Like he goes on to another thought in, in the next, in verse four of chapter two. Do you know what's missing? There's no evening and morning the seventh day. There's no end to the seventh day of creation. Now, now what's weird about this poem, this chiasm poem in Genesis one, is that again, the creation of humanity and the seventh day of rest don't fit in the poem. They stick out from the rest of the flow of the poem that you would expect. And the closest thing I could come up uh, to think about was uh, in music, there's a thing called a tag. And a, and a tag is like a, a, a chorus or a verse kind of thing that doesn't really fit with the rest of the song, but the, but the writer has made it a part of the song. And sometimes in the tag, like the whole, the whole feel of the song changes. Um, we do a couple, the band does a couple of songs like that where they have these tags where like the rhythm changes or the music changes, the key changes, something changes and you sing this portion and it just, it, it's like it, it's, it's connected somehow, um, but, but it doesn't really seem compatible to the rest of the song. So it's separate, but it's, but it's shoved in there. And so this um, chiasm poem has creation of humanity and uh, uh, and the seventh day of rest are like a tag to the song or the poem. They kind of are connected, but they're, but they're separate. They're different, like things kind of change when we get to here. The creation of humanity, it was different. It was special, it was unique. 
And so God doesn't put it into the poem. He intentionally puts it kind of outside the flow of the chiasm poem. And, and I, I think there's a, a reason for that. It's because he wants us to read it and go, something just changed here. This doesn't look like, it does, it's like that old Sesame Street, the, the, one of these things just doesn't belong. You remember that song? Uh, it's like it just doesn't fit. And so it causes us to go, wait a minute, I need to look at this again because this doesn't seem like it just flows with everything else. The other thing that happens in the ending tag section of this focus on, uh, is this focus on God um, resting. It's, it's like God just kind of t- takes a beat. He like takes a step uh, back. And, and I want to make sure we understand that God rests not because he's tired from his work of creation. If, if God was tired from creating, he wouldn't be God, right? If, if God gets tired, he, he's not very impressive, impressive God. So it wasn't because he was tired. It wasn't because uh, this, he had this resting thing on his to-do list and he was just like, okay, I've got to do this before I move on to the next thing. That, that wasn't it. it. It wasn't that he just, he was stressed out from creation. He got to the end, he's like, I just need a vacation. I, ne- I need to go away. That's, that's not what's going on here. In order to understand what's going on here, we have to go back and look at verse 31 because we read something very special there. We see there that God saw everything he had made and the text says, behold, um, it was very good. And the, the Hebrew word we actually talked about in the Shema series um, last year, the, the word means muchness. Um, and it's a, it's a Hebrew word, uh, meod. And so God saw all that he had made. This is at the end of the sixth day, so right before the seventh day. He saw all that, it was, uh, that he had made, and it was very good. And again, the Hebrew word, it was meod good. The word translated very, it means muchness. God looked at everything he had created in the first six days of creation, and it was good. It wasn't perfect, right? We're not talking about perfection or not perfection. This is like pass fail. He looks at it and it was good, was much good. It was very good. And so at the end of five of the six days of creation, God says of each of those days, it was good. And then we get to the sixth day and he says, he looks at all of it. Why? Because he gets to see how everything that he had just created on the six days, how it all fits together. All of these things that he separated and then he filled, he like steps back and he goes, okay, all of this stuff fits together just, just great. Like this is, this is good. This is exactly the way I wanted it to function. And so God wasn't tired because of creation. He was happy with his work. Now I took a pottery class um, years ago when I was making up some credits at, uh, at, at Butler. Um, and I, I really in, enjoyed that class. I had a lot of fun in that class. And one of the things you do, if you ever take a creative class like that, is you make something and you, you get done with it or you pull it out of the kiln and you go, well, most, not always, not, not all. Some of the things I made, not good, not good. I don't know what the word is, but it's not mayoed good. It is mayoed bad. But some things you pull out of the kiln and you go, wow, 
that turned out really cool. Like I didn't expect it because th- there's some things you don't know, right? When you, when you dip your clay in the uh, whatever it's called and you put it in there, you don't know exactly what is gonna come out of the kiln. And so you get it out and you look at it and you go, wow, that's really cool. I'm gonna celebrate this because this, really, uh, this is really neat. And so God looked at his creation which was functioning exactly like he set it out to function, exactly as he created it to. And, and he's like, wow, this is, this is good. And why was he able to do that? Because God created the universe to self-sustain and to self-regulate. So God doesn't um, personally have to feed every bird of the air. He knows what happens to every bird, but he doesn't have to personally feed every bird because he created birds with the innate ability to feed themselves. It's why animals, when they're born in in the wild, they just come out and they get up and they walk and they move around. It's an amazing thing. Um, It's it's why we replicate, that plants and, and animals replicate themselves. God created this world to to self-replicate, to self-sustain, to move forward. And he stepped back and he looked at all of this stuff and everything was functioning. It was like a a well-made watch or clock that was put together and all the little pieces are working exactly as he intended them to. And he's like, wow, this is good. It's functioning just the way I want it to. It's like Michelangelo when he finishes the statue of David and he steps back and he drops his hammer and he says, if I hit the chisel against that stone one more time, I'm going to ruin it. It's much good. It's very good. This is just the way I wanted it. God took the seventh day and he doesn't create and he doesn't separate and he doesn't fill. He doesn't author. He doesn't apprise. He just appreciates what he has made. He doesn't create. He doesn't critique. He's just content with everything just the way he created. He doesn't establish anything. He doesn't examine everything. He just enjoys all this stuff that he's created. God sees all that he had made and it was functioning just the way he intended. And he goes, this is very good. And then we get back to the other odd thing that happens in verse, uh, or in the end, in the seventh day. And there was no uh, morning or evening on the seventh day. Symbolically, God rests from his creation work and he just doesn't pick up his hammer again. He doesn't go back to work on what he did. So um, remember the first six days of creation, there is morning and there is evening. And we talked about how that's odd because nobody in the history of the world has ever talked about a day beginning in the evening and starting in the morning. No beginning in the evening and ending in the morning. We, we don't talk about um, creation. We don't talk about days um, like that. Every people group for all time has looked at a day that begins in the morning and ends in the evening. Why? Because it makes sense. Like anybody can figure that out. The, the sun comes up in the east and it goes, wake up, get up because it's coming up. And the sun goes down in the west and it says, go to bed. Like you're tired, it's been a long day, just, just go to bed. That's what we think. And so our day functions when the sun is out. Why would that be important for people in the first century, Jewish people or way back in Egypt days? 
What can't you do if you don't have light? <laughs> yeah, pretty much anything. Imagine if we had to go back to the days where every light in our house was a, was a candle. You, you just wouldn't do much. You couldn't do much. You couldn't see much. You couldn't do much. It would be like me with the truck and the trailer this morning trying to get around the storage unit to get some stuff out for church today. It was not good. I'll tell you about it later. <laughs> uh, when you can't see, you can't, you can't work. And so it makes sense that all of the stuff we would do would happen in the day when the sun comes up, when the sun goes down, uh, we go down. It just makes sense. So why does God say evening and morning? Why does God take this day of rest that doesn't appear to have an end? Well, um, let me ask you this question. What were the Jewish people doing for the 250 years before they got to Mount Sinai where God gave Moses, the origin story. They were working. Where? Egypt? Yeah. The, okay, this front of the class right here. Good job. Good job. Um, okay, for 250 years, they had been slaves in Egypt um, before Moses gets the origin uh, story. So how long uh, did Jewish people uh, work for Egypt every day? How long did they work? Yes, daylight to dark because you can't work at night because there's not enough light. So they worked from sun up to sun down. How many days a week did they work? Seven. How many days a year did they work? Yeah. What did they make? Bricks. Good. You guys are, you guys do pretty good. So what is a Jewish man's worth measured in? If you're in Egypt. Yes. The number of bricks you could make in your lifetime. So if you were going to purchase a Jewish man back in this day, you would buy them based on how many bricks they could produce before the end of their life. That was the worth of them as a person. So the first thing God tells the Jewish people about his creation is not just about creation, it's about rest, which would appeal to people whose entire identity for generations had been bound to their ability to produce. So, let's just stop for a second. I told you earlier that there was this word in the center of the Genesis 1 chiasm that was an important word, it was a treasure in the text. And so I wanna go um, back to that here. The word at the very center of the creation story happens early in day four, which is right where you'd expect it to appear. God creates the sun and the moon and the stars to separate the day from the night. Let them serve as signs to mark sacred times. The NIV uses this term, sacred times. The Hebrew word translated sacred times is the word moad. Moad is the single word at the center of the chiasm of creation. So if you go to the bookends in the Hebrew text and you count from the end and from the beginning and you begin to count each way, there is a single word, moad, that is right smack dab in the middle of this chiasm poem. This word moad is one of only four words in our Bible that is translated into the word Sabbath. 
Sabbath is a churchy word. In the Hebrew, the word Sabbath or Shabbat or Shabbat um, means uh, to cease or desist. It means to stop. It means to rest. (laughs) Now, the sacred times that the sun and the moon and the stars mark refer not only to the Sabbath, but to the festivals, to the parties that the Jewish people would have, would have during the course of their years. They celebrated the Feast of Weeks, and Passover, and all of these things. So in the very center of the poem on creation, God tells his people to rest, to party, to have fun. Why does he do this? To, to the Jewish person, it's a daily reminder, evening to morning, Resting, it's a daily reminder that their day doesn't begin with production. Our day begins with production, right? We in America are completely caught up in the Egyptian way of life. Probably this morning, at some point, you have already thought, I gotta get up and go to work tomorrow, right? Because it's Monday, and we know the sun is going to come up, and I've got to go to work. i got to go make bricks, and maybe it's not bricks. It's anything else, but the same result is the same, right? i got to make bricks because i got to provide for my family. i got to provide for myself. If I stop making bricks, how can I support my family? How can I survive if I don't make bricks? Our worth is absolutely tied up in our production. Now, um, For guys, we know this, and and probably for most people today, what's one of the first questions we ask somebody when we meet a new person? What do you do for a living? What kind of bricks do you make? (laughs) What brick factory are you in? Because I'm over here, and I haven't seen you before, and we're totally tied up in this Egyptian idea of, of production. And so the Jewish day doesn't begin. Now, prior to Mount Sinai, the Jewish day began in the morning and it ended in the evening. And then God, Moses comes down off the mountain and he says, hey, look, this is how God wants you to count a day from morning or from evening to morning, from evening to evening. Uh, my friend Terry, you know him because he preaches for us. He has been to um, Israel uh, several times. And uh, it's fascinating to listen to him talk. When you are in the Jewish sectors of Israel, even today, at sundown, on Friday, everything shuts down because that's the beginning of the Jewish Sabbath, Shabbat. Every every store, every gas station, everything. If you need something, tough luck because you will not be able to get it if you are in Israel from Friday morning uh, or from Friday when the sun goes down to Saturday when the sun goes down. That is their Sabbath. That is their seventh day. Why? Because God wanted the Jewish people to remember that their day doesn't begin with production, it begins with rest. Why would God say this? Why is, why is, isn't God's economy based off what we can accomplish? Because that's what everything is, what we can produce, how many sales we can make. Your worth to God isn't based off of your production, It's based off of you being his good creation. You want to know what the Genesis story is really about? It's about how much God loves you and cares about you. 
In fact, if we go back to Jesus walking the earth, what does he say about the people who are trying to keep Sabbath so rigidly that they're counting off how many steps you can take on the Sabbath? And if you go any farther than that, you're breaking the Sabbath and it's not good. Um, What does Jesus say? He says, hey, don't forget that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. God created the Sabbath rest for you. He didn't create you to have to worry about the Sabbath. This is for you. Your worth isn't based off your production. It's based on you being God's creation. Marty Solomon says this, you are not valuable slaves. You are not rescued slaves. You are not liberated slaves. You're not valuable because of your ability to make bricks. You are valuable because you are the crowning moment of all God's good creation. That's why the creation of humanity and the seventh day stick out from the Genesis chiasm. The first time in the history of the world that God speaks directly to a human being and says, write this down, this is what he says. Your worth is not determined by your work. Where else do you find this? Even in relationships today, What have you done for me lately? (laughs) How many bricks have you made for me lately? And then I'll count how much worth you have in my life. The first lesson of the entire Bible, the introduction of who God is and who we were created to be, the first thing God wanted us to know about creation is that it was good when he created it. That once he made it, he rejoiced over it. He said, wow, this is incredible. This is exactly the way I wanted it to be. And even in the midst of creation's brokenness, what is most true about it, about us, is that it's good. So when God looks at us, he goes, I made that. (laughs) That's good. So we go, what is faith? Well, faith is trusting what God says to be true. Faith is going, whatever God says, I'm gonna believe it. And what God says is that you are enough. You are enough. Not because of what you can do, but because of who he created you to be. And so our struggle as followers of Jesus is not to understand everything about Genesis and everything that God does. Our struggle is simply to accept that what God tells us is true. And so, Why does God start history like this? Because he wanted us to know that what he creates, he also cherishes. Now you may not think that you are worth much. Maybe it's been a rough week and and, and things just haven't worked out. And and you came here today just because like, I don't know, I might as well. Maybe you've squandered opportunities in your life. And you think, man, if I would have just done that, if I was, could have done that. Maybe you don't feel like you're strong or smart or, or beautiful enough. Maybe you've tried. You've tried to better yourself. You've tried to get ahead. You've tried to do things, but you've just failed too many times to count. Maybe your addiction keeps wasting your opportunities. God still loves you. He celebrates your every win 
and he mourns every struggle with you. I heard a friend say this last week, um, that we have a bad habit of writing our failures in stone and our successes in the sand. Although that's pretty good. But God thinks we're so special that he made us the focus of his creation story. And so it's not about the constellations that we spend so much time looking at and trying to figure out our lives based on what the stars tell us. And he doesn't make the focus of his creation story, his own creative power. He doesn't make the focus of his creation story, the other creatures that he creates. The focus of his creation story is his creation of us. And it's why he sent Jesus. It's why he promised that one day he's gonna put everything back the way it was. Good enough to celebrate. That's what he wants to do for you. And we're really good about beating ourselves up for every mistake we make and everything we've done wrong, but God thinks you're pretty good. And if we can rest in that, we can rest in the knowledge that our worth isn't tied to our production of bricks, then we can put our hammer down and we can really rest in God. Let's pray. God, we spend literally our entire lives trying to prove that we are worthy, that we're that we're worthy of the positions that we hold, we're, we're worthy of the love that we receive, we're, we're worthy as parents, we're worthy as, as kids, we're worthy as students, we're worthy as employees, we're, we're worthy as brickmakers. But you tell us in the very first chapter of the entire work that you have given us, you tell us in the very first chapter that we are worthy simply because you created us. And so God, today, we just wanna rest in that. We just wanna rest in the knowledge that you created us and it's good. And even though we've messed it up, when you look at us, you see your incredible creation. And so, Father, we just, we stand in awe of that. Help us to be amazed at your love and not just all the other things that you do. God, this week, as, as, we, as we step back into the <laughs> Egyptian narrative of production, because we're going to go to work tomorrow, and we've got to, and it's okay. Help us to find joy in our work. Not, not because it's everything we want it to be, but because in you, we're everything you want us to be. And so whatever we're doing, whatever bricks we're making this week, help us to find joy in that and to remember that in you there's rest and that we can rest in your love for us. Help us to do that, God, in Jesus' name, amen.